mistakes. How do you learn from those mistakes and adjust and pivot? Welcome to the Startup Palette Show. When you think of startups, you think of Silicon Valley. We're going to venture beyond the valley and paint a picture of the startup ecosystem featuring diverse founders, investors, and operators. We'll hear about their origin stories that shape them, the highlights, the lowlights, best practice, and their visions for the future. Join me as we get a front seat to witness the phenomenal role of these pathbreakers. I'm your host, Preeti Mohan. Let's get started. Today we have Soleil Valiappan, who is a actuary and an investor and around extremely smart person. I'm so glad to have you here, Soleil, and I can't wait to see what we unpack and uncover in this episode. So let's start with your origin story. Tell us about your background and everything from your childhood. <laughs> okay, it's a big one. It's a, it is a big one. So I was actually born in New Zealand. I'm the daughter of South Indian migrants. And so my parents moved from the South of India mid-80s because there was a shortage of doctors in New Zealand at the time. And then we moved to Australia when I was about seven. And we actually lived in the Gippsland area. We moved to Sydney when I was 12. And I very much identify as a Sydney-sider because I went to high school here, went to university here, and it was where I spent the most amount of my time. Being the child of South Indian migrants influenced you. Like, have you been in touch with your South Indian culture? I would say probably in the last 10 years, I've been reconnecting with that side of me. Whereas growing up very rurally, there weren't many migrant kids, or if there were, it was, you were noticed, you were noticed. And so you had to not be cautious or careful, but anything you did was was seen or would be spoken about in the, these small communities and also because my, my dad was often their doctors or things like that. I had a bit of a spotlight on you, which was, and the other thing being in school, I was different and I didn't want to be different. It was like, oh, why am I different? Why do I have different food? Why do I sometimes have to wear different clothes for certain events on the weekend? So there was a, there's a real distancing of myself growing up, I could feel, and then as I've gotten older, I'm feeling more comfortable with who I am and my heritage and also going back to India more autonomously without, without my parents holding <laughs> my hand, being able to go, myself, go by myself. And as, you, as I got to go more often, just reconnect and understand, oh, this is why my parents do that or this is why things are done like this, like just to have more of that understanding and to understand more of who I am and being really proud of you. Do you find an eternal struggle to fit in or like place yourself under one category or another? That where it's I'm not quite I'm not quite Australian and I'm not quite Indian either so I'm in between these and two. Kiwi as well. Oh, yeah <laughs> I definitely lost my Kiwi accent I would say. <laughs> so you're in between these two worlds but then it's also Good to know you're not alone there are so many other people who are, have migrant parents and are in between two worlds as well so it's how do you create something that works for you right that you can you can take a bit from both and create yes yeah, the culture growing up in regional new zealand what was it like especially being new immigrants and being very high profile in the country town just remember there was a lot of us there was a, a big spotlight you had to just be a bit more cautious about what you did what you said how you were but then also I wanted to like 
really assimilate, I suppose, and be welcomed. And so there were certain things that I would try to adopt. And so now when I see family friends who are recent migrants and they've got little kids, you can see that they don't have to necessarily have to do that. You can see that they, they're much more embracing of both sides and of their culture as well. And so that's really warming to see. They don't have to, there's something there that's more embracing. They don't need to dismiss something where I felt maybe there was something that I was unconsciously or consciously dismissing as a child. And so now it's like, okay, how can I embrace that or bring more of that forward or just be unapologetic. And so what were those things that you dismissed as a child that now you're super proud of? I think sometimes I'd be like, oh, can you not pack me that for lunch? <laughs> and now it's like, when, when you bring something from home or when you cook something, people are like, what is that? What is that? Can I try some of that? It's so different. And also the language thing as well. Like I definitely didn't want other people to hear me speak Tamil or anything like, like where it's like, oh, no, 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 then I'm a bit different. So it's all of those things where I'm embracing more of the food, more of the language, more of the culture, and also certain traits or certain customs. Like if I borrow, if someone gives me a plate of food or with something in it, I can't not give the plate back without an orange or <laughs> mandarin or something. And it's a very a cultural Indian thing where it's like you don't give an empty plate. So it's those kind of things where I'm like, you know what, they may not understand this, but I need to do this, otherwise my mum's going to tell me off. <laughs> it's hard-minded to vibrate as well. And it's funny that you mentioned food because I had an incident where in primary school I was given like curried potatoes in a jaffle and I was made fun of for that. But if you look at it now, that's like gourmet food that you pay a lot for in a restaurant. So it's amazing how things have changed. Getting to your uni days, what made you choose actuary studies? So I was actually very fortunate and I received a scholarship. So that made it an easier decision. And actually, I was listening to this podcast by Roloff Walter, who's a Sequoia capital partner. And he studied actuarial studies in South Africa. And I was hearing his interview where he was talking about it. And he was saying it's like one of the hardest subjects you can do. And that was my actual thinking as well going into it. I was like, this is one of the hardest subjects that you can do at university. I really wanted to push myself and I really enjoyed mathematics. So I just thought, okay, what if I could do the hardest thing possible? There was something about where I felt like I could be matched intellectually somewhere. It definitely was. And I was also kicked around a lot yeah. by, the, by the content and, and the exams. I really want to do something quite difficult where... It's, yeah, really challenge myself to do something and also match that mathematical interest that I had. You mentioned previously that you're a type A personality and that you want to be extended all the time. So I think it ties back into that, would you say? Yeah, I'm constantly competing with myself where when I was younger, I was trying to compete with others, but now it's like all about myself. It's like, how can I be better? every single day? How can I learn from what I've done in the past? We all make mistakes. How do you learn from those mistakes and adjust and pivot? And I think those are certain traits that you see in really good founders as well. And so if you can't do that as an advisor and an investor, then how can you ask of that of other people? Yeah, and I think that's great. So you are your own benchmark. And do you think in a way, comparing it to your childhood, it's given you peace to benchmark yourself against yourself? Yes. I do remember that as a kid, I would, I would always push myself because just looking at my parents and their work ethic, that it was, oh, hard work sets you apart. But also I remember my dad always, he loved like the fact that in Australia and New Zealand, you can work really hard and be recognized for that. 
Like there aren't certain things my parents would reflect in India about the caste system, who you know, the network. It, of course, there are those aspects here, but they reflected that it felt like a, a more even playing field. Of course, it's not completely even, but there was just more space and opportunity to really thrive. And so that was something I felt was instilled in me. And I thought, okay, well, I can work really hard. I'm really smart. I can apply myself. And it was the way that I could also not be disputed as well. If you're the smartest, then people can't dispute what you're doing or you can't be dismissed somewhere as well. So yeah, I very much recognize things from my childhood which have yet perpetuated. How does that apply to your investment mentality, especially when the founder is meant to be the subject matter expert? Well, I would say that I'm never the smartest person in the room. <laughs> it's more I'm trying to be the smartest person of myself today. I think from any interaction you have, whether it's with a founder, a stakeholder, another investor, you should always be able to learn something, learn something, hear something, so that you can go, oh, that's really, that's really interesting. And also, generally, investors can be generalists, and so it's very arrogant to assume that you know everything and the founder doesn't. I would say that the founders definitely have the subject matter expertise, and what I can bring is having looked at a fair few investments or business models, just sort of prod them or ask them, oh, how can this expand or how can this grow or how do you mitigate this risk? So it's applying different frameworks that they can still play in their subject matter expert expertise, but tease out more of those things because you want to find out more about their ability to execute. How do I draw out so much more so that it's like, oh, wow, okay, you're definitely the person to back on this. I think that's a great way of doing it, like asking open-ended questions so that you understand how much of an expert they are in the subject. So when it comes to founders, especially because you have a data-driven mindset, where does gut and instinct play compared to the facts and data? So, yes, this has been really interesting as I've been thinking more through this, especially at, say, the pre-seed or pre-revenue stage where there isn't data. There isn't revenue and lots of clients and lots of, lots of metrics that you can look at the financial model and go, oh, okay, this is where you're hitting. But there are other ways that you can test, test for that or to see the, the progress a founder is making. I've been asking and also been doing a lot of research on how to ask more open-ended questions and also how to calibrate them so that they're the same, no matter who you are. Because I've read a lot of research that potentially female founders are asked different questions about, oh, how you can mitigate this and how you can reduce this risk. And how male founders are potentially asked, well, how can you make this bigger and how can this be 10x? So it's how can you have a set of questions that are very, very similar that are asked so that that bias isn't coming into it. I'm still definitely working on this. That goes to my data brain of like, what are the questions that you can ask that help to create this even playing field? Then you can just compare the answers, right? If you're asking the same questions. That's interesting because it's an industry-wide challenge and it's something I don't think anyone has successfully tackled yet. How do you think, as an investor that's a woman of colour, do you think you've attracted more diverse founders? Absolutely, <laughs> without a doubt. It's been super interesting to see who comes into your DMs in Twitter and Instagram. That's my preferred mode of being in touch because my LinkedIn is just crazy. And also, it's a good way to see if people are reading 
And so when I say, hey, reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram, and they actually do, I'm like, hey, I'm actually seeing that, that request. But it's been fascinating to see, especially the number of women of colour who come into my inbox and say, hey, I'm thinking about raising. And then often when I've had a chat with them, they've said, this is my first conversation. And it's like, oh, wow, that's super exciting that they're taking this step. And I wonder if I wasn't there or if there weren't other people that where they could feel an affinity to, then maybe they wouldn't come forward. Maybe they would be hidden. But it's been really cool to see, okay, that's their first step. I won't be the I won't be the last or the only one, but it's that entry point to go. Ah, oh, okay, maybe I feel a bit more brave to keep going on this. So that's been that's been super exciting. That's incredible because I think I have spoken to many women and many women of color, and there is a hesitation to approach the normal VCs. Do you think it's a comfort level thing knowing that you're a woman of color and can empathize with what they've been through, or what, like even the problem they're solving? I'm not sure. Potentially it's a psychological safety thing or maybe it's just a, hey, I just don't know what to do or where to go. Here's the first step. The first step is the scariest, right? So it's just taking that, taking that step. But that's probably a good question I should ask them, like ask them quite directly. Why did you reach out to me and what made you feel compelled to do that? And that may tease out the, the why as to why they're doing that. But also it could be just the don't know where to go, don't know what to do. Maybe uh, someone suggested that they'd have a chat to me as well. Like the, there's a lot of networking that goes on amongst founders. So what do you think the industry can do to improve the metrics and increase diversity? We know the stats behind women and we know the stats behind women of colour and in general people of colour. The funding equation is very low. Yes, and actually there is a piece of work that I'm currently working on to look at BIPOC founders and the funding. I've seen it done in the States and I think it can be done here. So I'm currently thinking about that and because of course I'm a data driven person so I want to look at the data. I think it's a multi-pronged approach. There are people who say that there isn't pipeline. I'm happy to disagree with them with especially the people that are coming into my inbox and who are looking for funding or building VC backable companies who are building private equity companies. So the, the pipeline is there. And then I think there's also potentially if you have investors who are sitting on the other side of the table to have bring more of that psychological safety as well. And then it's also up to all investors to create psychologically safe spaces, right? Safe open spaces. And then also LPs. LPs have definitely, can definitely ask of these questions, right? What are your diversity metrics? How do you measure diversity? How do you do all of these things? If it's important to that LP. So at all stakeholders, have a can have a vested interest in this it's not a oh, i can't do anything about this not my place yeah interesting and interesting that you mentioned that there is enough of a pipeline because the conversation has been very largely that at the top of the funnel there aren't enough women or women of color even approaching investors and we've talked about psychological safety how like what else do you think comes into play and do you believe there is actually enough volume at the top of the funnel I think I have seen sometimes a gap in some of the women of colour founders that I've seen, and it might be actually more just a confidence and a knowledge gap as opposed to an ability. So it's maybe they don't know certain things, and so there needs to be some information or knowledge hubs. And there's a lot out there, but some it's so disparate that sometimes people just don't know where to start. So that's been really helpful where I've been able to direct them to, hey, by the way, this particular organization has these, these documents that are open source. 
this doc, um, this particular organisation can help you with this part of uh, these kind of things. There's the, I think it's Arlen Hamilton. I was reading something she said that there is no excuse not to know the information these days because everything is available on the web, in books, in podcasts. It's just about your intention and your willingness, willingness to find that information and to learn it. Yeah, and so when you say the knowledge, what areas do you think there's an upskilling required? Sometimes it's about business models and also what, what business models are matched to what funding mechanisms. Because I have met some founders who don't want to create a billion dollar business and so when they've been going to VCs, they've been knocked back and they, they didn't know why. And so I just had to sit this founder down and say, hey, by the way, this is the, this is the type of business model or the type of growth that a venture capital investor would require. And you're telling me that you want to build something that's a bit different. So I think you need to find funding mechanisms that match that. So there's that gap as well of knowing the business models and how they match to different funding that is available. So there could be there could be crowdfunding, there could be debt, there could be bootstrapping. Best type of business, right? Where your clients are your <laughs> clients are your investors yeah. in some way. And so understanding what that is, because then that can either reduce the frustration and also target the funding mechanisms you go after, but also could help you to oh, actually, I do want to build this business, and so this is the business model I need to create. These are the growth metrics I need to think of. This is how I need to scale it, and this is what a VC will look into. That's that's probably the key thing that I've noticed at the moment. I think I can relate to that because as a previous founder myself, it was knowing about the size of the market that I was going after, as well as is it suited for venture funding? Should I actually pursue that pathway? So absolutely. Shifting gears a little, how do you evaluate startups that come to you? This is evolving over time. I generally, well, my personal portfolio is generally the pre-seed or the seed, so early stage. And what I've learned is that it's all about the founder. So I like to get to know the founder over a period of time because it's their ability to execute and how will they iterate and how are they resilient. There are going to be so many things that come their way. So it's getting to know them over a period of time. It's also really important that it is a two-way street. Like when you invest in a company, you're attached together for the next 10 years. That's a, that's a really long time. That outlasts many marriages. Okay. <laughs> so it's one of those things of, I think as a founder, you should definitely choose and be intentional about who comes onto your cap table as well. And so uh, the founder is probably the biggest thing that I, that I look at. And then I guess there are other parts like the business model, the business sector. I love a financial model. So I have a look at the financial model because that's the best way that I can understand how the business works, how the founders are thinking about scale, where their domain expertise is in relation to the sector and the business model that they're going into. And then I also like to look at other things that are data driven as well, like the cap table, who the other advisors are, because it comes back to who's around the founder. When it comes to the advisor board that the founder surrounds them with, do you have any tips or like where do they need to start looking for advisors? With an advisory board, like you don't, you don't have to have one for the sake of having one. It should always serve a purpose. And so perhaps there's someone who has that skill set that you don't have. So that's a great way to bring that skill set into the business. The other thing is that you want to have some kind of agreement with them. 
as well of what are they bringing to the advisorship. So maybe you have a trial period before bringing them on and then how are they going to serve you and your company for the next one to five years, right? To have that long-term long -term view as well. Yeah, and flipping the equation, when you choose to serve as an advisor or on the board of a business, I know you've written a article or a blog post about this, how do you choose who, who to be, how do you choose what board to be on? It'd be similar to, do I want to spend my time and time and money on this, right? The, and so that's, I think the number one thing for me is like an alignment of values with the, with the founder and what they're building and how they operate as well. Because things are going to get tough. I'm not afraid to give tough feedback as well. And also, hey, by the way, have you thought about this? And so this openness to listen and to iterate is pretty key with doing that. And then, yeah, as I said, I, I put a blog post together because a lot of people, it's very opaque about how to think about boards and advisory boards. And often, sometimes I'm just fast and it's like, oh, I needed to build a framework as to how to put it on because there's also a lot of risk involved with being on a board as well. And so you need to feel comfortable that you can put your, your time and your energy and your accountability and responsibility to that, to those founders and that organisation. Let's say we want to bring more women of colours to investment roles. Where do they start and is the first step maybe advisory roles at startups? Hmm, potentially. So when I started in startups, there was there were no programs. There were not no programs, but it was very limited. I think there was the Startmate Accelerator, but you had to be a founder. There was nothing for operators or investors. I think now there's, a, well, there's so many Startmate fellowship programs. They started with women. I'm a coach for the women. Um, there's Airtree Explorer, which I understand you're, a, of, you're yes. a part of Airtree Explorer. A couple of years ago, I did do the Wade Institute VC Catalyst course, which was as a Stanford professor. It's out of the Uni of Melbourne. I've heard great feedback about that great, course. Great, great course. I was in the 2020 cohort and it was online and it stayed online since, but it was phenomenal network. Everyone's willing to learn, wanting to understand. Yeah, when I started, I basically started working as an operator in a startup and then I was spending my, I guess, my MBA money investing in startups. So I was kind of creating my own thing for myself because it wasn't out there. And then I was listening to podcasts and reading and just this constant, okay, how do I just learn about this? but not learn just the theory, try and do it as well. So that helped working in a startup where you understand the operations and we were going from like very, very small size to and then scaling quite quickly. So that was great to see that growth. And then also doing due diligence on companies through some angel syndicates and other things like that, just to understand, okay, well, how would I evaluate a company? And so that goes to that iteration point of constantly learning, refining the frameworks, there are certain things now that had I known back then, I would have made different decisions, but this is this is how we learn. So what are some of those things? Oh, wow. I think I would, there are a couple where I would spend more time with the founders, spend a bit more time with the founders. There was, And also to note that you're never rushed into a decision, especially when it's your own money, because you have, you have control of that deployment. So you should never feel rushed. Actually, I heard about this venture capital firm in the US that does a great job of evaluating founders and startups. So instead of the model here, which is a few interactions and mostly going through the pitch deck and then due diligence, their model is from the beginning to deep dive into each of the different functional areas of the startup and provide them feedback and advice and do that over a series of meetings and then finally decide to invest. 
I think that might take some of the bias out. Do you have an opinion on that? Well, it depends on the stage as well, because if it's so early stage, if you're looking at each of these functions, some of the functions don't even exist, right? So that, yeah, but that's really curious about like looking at the functions and then also, yeah, a great way to provide that feedback of, hey, by the way, we've looked at this many things, this is what we've seen work, perhaps you want to try this. And so I like founders who don't blindly follow advice as well. Like ones who think about it and go, oh yes, that would apply, or yes, that would apply, but I need to make these changes and this is why. Yeah, that critical thinking. The, the notion of like challenging and critical thinking, I think is really important as a founder and it's something that I learned the hard way. What, like, what have been some of the best founder interactions you've had where they've challenged you? It's been fun when they've said, when I've given them data and they've said, been quite defensive and been like, no, no, we're not doing this. And then very interesting where maybe a month or two months later or three months later or six months later, I've had another chat with them and they've said, actually, I've kept thinking about what you've said and these are the changes I've made and this is what I've done. And it's like, okay, maybe you weren't ready to hear that at that time and that's okay. There've been other ones where just smashing certain assumptions that I have, which is always a learning process, especially when I don't have the subject matter expert expertise at all. And so that's also helping me to cache of, hey, I've read this article on this, tell me how it's wrong, or tell me how it's different to this, or I've seen this in the media, or this is the, this is the rhetoric I've been hearing, like, is this correct or is this something blown up? And so that's been really good when they've been able to, I guess, give me 10 evidence of like, hey, by the way, yes, like the media like to take this particular thing and blow it up, but actually look over here. And when they're able to give me something where, where they say, go and have a listen to this, go and read this, go and, go and have a look at this. Like, I like those founders, yeah. So you, you spoke about the founders coming back to you and keeping in touch. What should be the cadence of communication back to potential investors or existing investors? Yeah, I think investor updates are the best way to keep in touch. It's also a great way for you to put your asks as well. And that's the way that investors can keep on top of what you're doing because your time is really valuable. So you can't have half an hour, one hour chats over a period, like every single month. Maybe you can, but as in, that's a lot of your time to do that. Whereas you're able to create like an investor update that you can just send on a regular cadence. I think when you're starting out, maybe before funding, maybe monthly would be would be great or, or quarterly, but something where you have a few touch points to be able to show your progress. I was talking to a couple of investors and we were just saying how we love the founders who, who say, hey, this is what I'm gonna go do. And then the next update, they come back with, we said we were going to do this, we've done, now done this, and by the way, we learned this, and this, and now we're going to go do this, and then you can start to see that progress. And that's also how you see the execution. And that's also how you remove some of that bias as well. It doesn't matter what the target you're putting, if you're meeting those targets, so okay, you said you're going to do this, you've executed this, or even if you haven't, and you know why, and what you're going to do differently, that's really, really helpful to see as well. And then also in the asks, it can be a great test for you to see which investors come back. Which investors come back and say, hey, by the way, I can introduce you to this, or by the way, have you read this, or have you looked at this, or like, you know, that's a way for you to also do due diligence on the investor as well. Like, do you prefer longer or shorter updates? Oh, shorter updates, of course, because <laughs> you're receiving quite a, but it also shows your ability to communicate succinctly, to get your points across. It doesn't need to be an essay, it could be dot points, graphs are fantastic because everyone loves an image right but you should also be mindful of how much information you do want to communicate as well so you might have two different versions as well one for i've seen 
some of my portfolio companies have one that's in the tent where there's a little bit more information and then they kind of have an abridged version of that where they send to wider stakeholders as well. So you can play with it as to how you want to communicate as well, but it shouldn't feel like a burden. It yeah. should feel like it's enhancing, like, okay, I'm giving some information and also it's an avenue and an invitation to also receive feedback or help. So do you often respond to the investor updates with feedback, even when it wasn't an ask? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There have been some where I've given them feedback on the update as well. There was one where they didn't have any numbers or they didn't have any metrics. And so I had no visibility of how they were measuring the business and tracking success, whatever success looks like for them. So I just went back and I said, hey, it'd be really great to see the three main, three main key indicators. Maybe you're doing this internally. Maybe you don't want to share this, but you know, just thought you would know. You'd like to know that. And they found that quite helpful. Founders can take the, the feedback with a grain of salt if they want, yeah. It's up to them how they wish to enact on it. Yeah, absolutely, because they know their business best mm. at the end of the day. There's this mentality of failing fast. Where's the value of saying you'll do this and achieving it versus experimenting, failing, and iterating? I guess it depends on the stage and where you're at and what you're trying to achieve, right? So if you're in that period of, okay, we're just going to try a whole lot of experiments to see what is working, that's that's also iterating and learning, right? If you say, hey, this is what we're going to do, and then you go and do it, and say you say, okay, we're going to try six of these things, and by the end, if you know that five of them don't work, that's that's a great learning. Actually, I've been I've listened to the latest Annie Duke's interview about her new book called, I think it's about quitting, quitting fast. She talks about having a kill list, and I love this idea where it's, you know, there are all these, we have all these frameworks of this is what you should do to keep going, Maybe we should also have frameworks of if these certain things happen, then we cut. And, and that doesn't need to be the business, but it could be elements that you're experimenting or ways or processes or how you're engaging with people. So I thought that was really interesting to have a kill list. Interesting. I, I think that's a great idea because not everything is going to work. So if you do have a kill list, you can look back at it and also reflect on what you've learned. Exactly. I think the example that she was giving in that interview was there was a team where they figured out if they didn't have a meeting with a decision maker in the first three meetings, then the sale wasn't going to happen. And so I was like, oh, that's a really smart kill list where it's like, okay, we've had three meetings, we haven't made a decision maker. Stop. Those learnings are yeah. super valuable to carry forward and almost become a playbook in the yes. future. Yes, yes. So it's like things that, signs and signals that tell you to keep going and I suppose red flags to tell you stop. Excellent. What's your vision for the future, the industry as a whole, and maybe your vision for investments and where they should go, the mentality around investments? I'd love to see more funding go towards more women because just looking at the numbers, you can see, and I think the latest numbers were showing that it was going backwards. I'd love to see more funding going to women of colour, people of colour, but I also, yeah, I think just a more open, open playing field where... Somewhere it feels that sometimes it's a bit opaque. And so that transparency and openness, I'd love to be able to, for Australia to get to where the States is going and currently is, where there are funds that are specific for certain. I was talking to a family office here where they were, they've invested a fund over in the US that only looks at, I think it was like health or women's health. It was very specific. And I was like, wow, to get to that stage where you could have funds based on that increasing specialisation. Um, and I think there's something of a turning point in Australia where we're starting to have more and more funds come, and so increased specialisation is going to start happening. And I think that's really exciting. 
and also angel syndicates that are helping add to the um, to the specialisations. So, like, there's Australian medical angels. Yes, there's a lot more appetite for this as well. A lot more appetite. A lot more people coming into the sector. So, I hope that only grows because that is only a good thing for founders as well. There was this really interesting piece of research I read, which said that women who raise funding from women initially, their follow-on round, men don't like to follow on because they think the women gave investment just because they're women. I think with any investor, they will have a thesis, they will have a framework, they will have due diligence. So I would encourage anyone to go and talk to those investors to understand how they came to their decision because then that will help to determine whether it was just because or whether there was actually thought framework and investment committee around it as well. So I think it's also about doing that due diligence on other investors as well so you feel comfortable that, yes, I can trust their investment decisions. So, But on the surface, if people are making those decisions or making those assumptions, yeah, that's that would be disappointing. Yeah, and I, I think as a woman founder, it's probably not the right investment if they are considering those factors for their investment. Yeah, the more investors that are in the ecosystem, then the more options there are for founders so that you can, as I said before, intentionally choose who's on your cap table. It's a long journey. How much of your life do you believe you've curated, created, or chanced upon? Oh man, the chance bit. There have been so many, I, want to say, I don't want to say lucky breaks, but I think they've been a function of curating and creating. Like you don't, unless you curate and create, chance then has a chance to operate. So yeah, they're gonna be boring, be like, the, the, the. <laughs> I think it depends on the stage you're at and also how much time and space you have as well. Currently for the last couple of months, I've been really working on my blog and that's been more about creation. And that's more, I guess there's a bit of a creative flow and things that I want to share. So that's been more creative and also curating that as well and then that has brought about I guess chance things like you inviting me to speak and those kind of things as well so yeah maybe just a third of third of third. Excellent well thank you so much Saleha this has been incredible it's been eye-opening I think there are so many insights here that founders can take away and action and also it's been a deep dive into the investment mind which is not often shared transparently. Thanks Preeti I really enjoyed this. Thanks for tuning in to the Startup Power Show. If you had a blast listening to this episode, come on board and join our incredible cheer squad. Spread the startup love by sharing the episode with your friends, leave us a review, or drop us your valuable feedback, comments, or burning questions. Stay tuned for our next episode, where we'll shine the spotlight on another startup superstar. I'm Preeti Mohan, and I look forward to seeing you next time.